the Messiah, and that is the root of the Reformation. When suddenly people realized that Christ and the cross trumped culture. When the expectations forged in a cultural understanding of what seemed right or wrong was overshadowed by the personal relationship of Jesus Christ that transcended all things. And that became the Reformation. In Reformation Sunday, we accomplished two or we accomplished three tasks. We reflect on the testimony of a, a great church leader and how they persevered in faith with Jesus Christ. We reflect on our own testimony, our own commitment and desire to follow Jesus Christ. And then we also commit ourselves by responding to a life of faith in our daily choices to continually trust God in the world around us. We reflect on the testimony of others. We reflect on our personal testimony. And we respond to live a life of faith in the challenges of culture. Culture is a strange thing. It's one of those apparatuses that that inflict our mind with what we think we should do rather than in what we should do. In our larger culture, there is a new wave of compassion flowing within our culture. We need to help them, the less fortunate, those who are homeless, those who are on the margins of society, not to compromise our own station and status and security, but in order to reach out to them. That's wrong. I'm going to invite Robin Campbell up. Because oftentimes Robin is working with manna ministry. And what we do not realize is there are no boundaries of them. It's us. And Robin, you're micless. We've got to fix that. Is this a good one to use? Oh, that's, that's one we want to use. And Robin's had the, the opportunity and privilege to work with and, and uh, talk with people uh, who unfortunately are on the street. Tell us a little bit about some misconceptions and also uh, about uh, how faith is seen. Okay, and I'd like to share, first of all, um, some things that I, 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 many people have asked me and, and they've come to a con- conclusion of, who the homeless are. And uh, the first one is many people, it, it's truly a myth that they say that these people want to be out there. Um, 6% uh, surveys show us that um, are willing to stay out there. So that leaves us 94% who really would like to have a home. Another misconception is um, truly a myth is that they're, they're out there because it's their fault. They've done something wrong. Many of them left the home due to tremendous abuse, violence, uh, just terrible things I can't share with you. But they've left for unbelievable reasons. And also, there's people out there who have lost their jobs. So many right now are losing their jobs and just can't make it. And so they're all homeless. You know, that's Another thing is that 
a misconception and it's truly a myth that the homeless don't work. Unless they're um, not healthy, many, many work. They just can't make a go of it. They just can't provide a house and uh, food for their families and on a minimum wage, they just can't do it. And, and a lot of people uh, just can't, uh, even as individuals, can't find that job and, and enough so support to, uh, so it's part-time work that they're doing. They would prefer full-time. So that's a myth. Another uh, myth is that, um, oh, I hear the homeless, they're all mentally ill. Well, it's true that they're, they're emotionally disturbed. 25%, they say, are emotionally disturbed. And out of that 25%, 1% needs to, you know, real help. They need to be hospitalized and, and need some assistance. But 24% can be helped. And if they get the help and the love that they need, can live a productive life. So the other one that I get, the big one, is they're all drunks and winos or they're addicted to something, addictions. Addictions is the big one. Well, it's only one in four that are addicted. And out of that one in four, some of them come out of that 25% that I, that I shared with you. And the other ones, um, there's a number of them that weren't addicted until they got on the street and they used it to numb the pain. They were quite fine. They just couldn't deal with living on the street. The other myth is, that they're violent. You should be afraid of them, keep away from them. It's true, but it's very exceptional that the odd time a homeless person will hurt somebody, but that's the exception. Most of the time, they're the victim. People will go out and actually seek them out for entertainment and beat them up and be, use them and victimize them. So I want you to know that's... that's some of the things, there's so many things I could share with you, but the one that I want to leave you with most of all is that there are so many of them who are your brothers and sisters, and you don't know them, and they love the Lord. And I could tell you all sorts of story of faith and about people who have, you know, left the streets and they're, they're in these wonderful homes and they've got jobs, and they truly have. But I can tell you better stories about faith, about the people I've met over the years who are still out there, and they have nothing. They have absolutely nothing except for their faith. And those, those are the ones that I, I, I couldn't tell you a better story about those people. Those people... I can't even imagine myself being out there for a year, let alone uh, years, and loving the Lord like they do, and coming up to me and sharing with me in the van how they brought someone so to the Lord, how God has helped them through this hour, through this week, through this month, through this year, through last night. It was cold last night. You know, and all they got is God. But many people over the years, 
At first I thought it was the exception. I'd say, how did you last? How did you, how have you, how have you survived? And it's not uncommon now for them to tell me, we knew you were coming. And that's the message that I can give you. And you mentioned uh, at, at our last service, Robin, that, that over the course of some time now, 36 have, 36 have come to faith. 36 people have come to the faith, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and that's just yeah. tremendous. Yeah. To realize that God is working everywhere yeah. and changing lives. Good. Well, thank you so much. I did mention something else, too. Oh, well, then you better use this. No, no, no. no. It's just a tougher crowd. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now, what I did say, and Gerald... Gerald wants me to remind him that if, um, if we treated the homeless as we treat our pets, if we spent that same amount of money, we would have no homeless in B.C. Yeah. And that's a fact. That's not a myth. Yeah. Thank you, Rob. Confronting the status quo. Confronting the expectations placed upon us by culture. That's Reformation. I remember some of the cultural church changes. Forty years of church consciousness have have brought to mind a lot of things that have changed over that period of time. I remember going from where men sat on one side of the church and women sat on the other side of the church. I remember moving from all German services to English, from head coverings to coming to church with jeans. I remember no instrumentation to pianos and organ to drums and guitar. I remember singing hymns with harmony to singing repetitive choruses, to singing anthems of testimony. I remember lay leadership, single pastors, multiple staff, women deacons. And all subjugated to the Bible says. Reformation Sunday is a reflection on the faith of others, the reflection of our faith, And a determination to respond to live in trust of Jesus in the cultural conflict we find ourselves. 1517. Ooh, what a year. Great things happened in 1517. There was this monk. And as he was studying God's word and as he was reflecting upon it, his soul became so enraged with what was happening within his church that he said, I have to do something. And so he began to write out his concerns for the church. Ninety-five of them he came up with. Ninety-five things that really kind of, mm, his soul. And then he began to think, How do I let them know about that? Oh, I know. I'll nail it to the church door. (laughs) That'll get people's attention. When should I do it? Oh, yeah. Let's do it on the night of All Saints Day. The one holiday that Christians invented now taken over by the pagans. Halloween. 
Let's do it on the night when people will everywhere will come to church. They'll stop what they're doing and they'll come to church. Because on All Saints Day, we remember those who have died in faith. That's how it started. Remembering church fathers and, and people of faith who had passed away, leaving a legacy of trust in Jesus Christ. Good people. And then the comment was raised, well, everyone is good, or has some good in them. Let's remember everyone who has died. Oh, okay. Well, then how much good do you need to have in order to remember them? You need a lot of good, a little bit of good. What happens if you have very little bit of good? Well, we don't want anyone to perish in hell. So let's move them to a place of comfort and let's move them to a place where they can be remembered for their goodness. We should pray for them. And, and maybe pay somebody to pray for them and maybe buy some things that will help us remember them to pray for them to, so that they move from this place to this place and, because they're good. And it became the cultural norm to start paying to move someone from a place of anguish to a place of wholeness, changing their eternal destiny. And this really kind of, mm, this young monk, that doesn't make sense. When you read through scripture, he said, it, it doesn't work like that. And in his 95 concerns, he mentions this, and people read that and said, you're right, that doesn't make sense. Because the aristocrat and the church leaders are simply lining their money with, you know, their pockets with our money. That's not right. And there was a young teenager who was hearing these rumblings that was taking place in the country next to his and and, and he really gravitated to those words that this young monk, Martin Luther, said only by Scripture. And he began to think, well, that's very helpful. And as he began to read Scripture, he realized that the words of Scripture reflected his own life and reflected his own soul. He reflected on those passages of Scripture that enlivened him to praise and worship of God. God is great. Majesty. Worship His majesty. He reflected on those passages that, that, conform, that, that confronted him. To say, you need to live this way. Surrendered. Transformed. Renewed. Standing firm. And he said, yes. That's what I will do. I will transform my mind. I will stand firm in the faith. I will be led by the Spirit of God. And as he read scripture, he reflected on passages that led to his death. In 1527, Felix Mons died because of baptism. And we scratch our heads and we say, how, how, how did that happen? Why did that happen? 
baptism. We face cultural battles every day. Battles that seek to overwhelm our soul and cloud our mind and confuse our steps of faith. And when we reflect on our own personal walk with Jesus Christ, we recognize that the battles never stop. In schools today, the battle is faith in evolution versus faith in creation. Poverty issues, social justice issues, homelessness, the environment. All of these issues are being tackled without faith. Sexual orientation and gender roles. Relativism, objectivism, logic and rationale. All of these are being confronted. And Ephesians that we've been reflecting on in these last few weeks is so true when it says in verse 12 of chapter 6, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We are in battle. And it never stops. There is never a time in our earthly life When we come to a place of rest. And let me suggest. That if you are not experiencing chaos in your life. Maybe you have been embraced with complacency. If you are living a life without crisis. You have conformed. If you are not crying out for help. You've surrendered. We live in a battle. Faith is the struggle of trust. Living with the convictions formed by God's word that we embrace and that we enact. For months, it was baptism. You see, he read in scripture where Jesus himself was baptized. In surrender to the Father's will. This is my son whom I love. And he read further in scripture... That men and women were baptized because they had come to faith and they wanted to make a public declaration of a new trust, of a new allegiance, a new surrendering. 3,000 came to faith in one day. The man on the road, the jailer. And he saw what was being happened, what was happening in his church and churches around him, and he began to question it. Because he realized that within that culture, those within the church were seeking to bring solace to families who were grieving. In, the middle, in, in that time in, in, in Europe, there was a high mortality rate of children. And families were crying out, where are my kids going? And to bring solace to families, those in the church would come and they would baptize them and confirm them later in their faith. So as to bring solace to families who would grieve if their child died. That their child was in fact in heaven. And Felix Mont said, But that's not what the Bible says. First Peter 5.8 tells us, 
Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And in Romans 5 we read, Therefore, since you have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into His grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom He has given us. Our battle results in being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. The struggle is dying to self. We suffer so that it produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Because the enemy is never giving up, seeking to destroy us. So what do we do? Pray for one another, the Bible says. Encourage one another, care for one another, admonish, walk with, hold on to one another. But sometimes I wonder if we do not become so consumed with shopping that we have little time for one another. The Bible tells us, practice hospitality, do not neglect gathering together Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that you rush out and invite me over for dinner because I have far too many dinners to get rid of already. But when you look around, when you sneak a peek out of the corner of your eye, is there someone you see, you think, man, I could take them for coffee. I could take them for lunch. I could take them for dessert. Why? So that in hearing their story and you sharing your story with them, you encourage, you care, you walk with. You practice the verses that said, say, when one mourns, we all mourn. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. We have a benevolent fund in our church. And each Christmas we gather resources and we help about 30 people within our family. We've been trying to do it two other times. We've been trying to do it at Easter time and also at Thanksgiving time to help people within our family who through a variety of reasons find themselves in a place of need. Not different, just needing a hand. And we hear about them because we hear their stories. And when you have coffee with someone, when you have dinner with someone, when you have dessert with someone, you hear their story and you can tell us and say, what can we do to help? What can we do to reach out? What can we do to encourage? And we try to do what we can. But we need to hear the stories. There's a passage in Matthew that the early 
Anabaptists, and Felix Mons was one. And the Anabaptists, the early Anabaptists, gave root to the Mennonites and the Amish and the Hutterites and the Baptists. Us. And one of their hallmarks was that if the Bible says it, it's true. If the Bible says it, I will believe it. If the Bible says it, I will do it. And there's a verse that the early Anabaptists held on to that I struggle with. In Matthew chapter 10. Verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And Felix Montz believed this literally. Kill the body. And we look at our cultural comforts. We look at the things that we cling to that give us safety and reputation and security and status and significance and influence and we hold on to them. And we think in our minds at times, if I were to say that, if I were to confront that, if I were to go against that, what would happen to me? But is it true? And does it reflect the heart of Jesus? And if it's true and it reflects the heart of Jesus, is that promise of Scripture that says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, is that powerful enough for you to say and do what God is laying on your heart? Or is God too small? We reflect on the testimonies of others. We reflect on our own testimony and walk with Jesus Christ. And we respond to a life of continued trust and faith and obedience in the Word of God. The early reformers realized that it was from the Scriptures and Scriptures alone that lives would be changed. And the Scriptures needed to be in the language of the people. And we think, well, that's so common nowadays. In fact, in my office, I probably have I don't know, three, four, five translations on my shelf. And yet people gave their lives for that. They died for that. And we dust ours off conveniently from time to time. But if the word of God is a message from God's heart to our heart, God wants to speak to us. What is he saying? I read once a passage, or I read once an article, and in it, it said, I would rather have one word that shapes my life than 10,000 words that stimulate my brain. The Pharisees knew God's word, but they didn't know the author. Read it. Read the Word of God. How do we begin this? 
Romans tells us in Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you done that today? Have you done that? In your life, have you, Are you able to point back to a time when, yes, I have confessed, I believe, I hold on to that? Then in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of the world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. We give ourselves to God's leading. We allow the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, to transform our minds. As was read earlier today, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Whose understanding do we trust in? We trust in the Lord's understanding. Where do we get that understanding? We get that understanding in the Word of God. That our minds are transformed by the Word of God, but nothing will transform us if we're not reading it. I just think that when the Word of God says it, I believe it. And by His Spirit, I want to live it out. And the Word of God says in chapter 12 of Romans, beginning in verse 9, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourself. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In this passage, we, are demonst- we, we have demonstrated for us actions of respect and honor and care and concern. Who do we do this to? We do it to those that God will direct our path to. How? Verses 1 and 2. Spiritual act of worship, a living sacrifice. When? In view of God's mercy all the time. Why? Because it's pleasing to God. What? Love must be sincere. We confront the culture that threatens our faith with conspicuous acts of care and love. Mons believed and died for the fact that he wanted, that he believed that God wanted people to be baptized upon confession of faith and not conform to culture. What are the issues 
that are clouding our minds? What are the cultural concerns that are keeping us from focusing in on Jesus Christ? Where do we find ourselves walking towards safety and not full satisfaction in God? I mentioned earlier the pursuit for comfort. But I think at times we in the Western church have embraced a cultural understanding of marriage that is not correct. And we've allowed the culture to influence us and to dictate to us an easy escape clause. And the challenge with that is that marriage is seen as a covenant between two people under God. A promise that is made to to live together, to grow together, to nurture and care together, to submit together. I think in marriage there are three issues that come to mind. Do you love God? Do you love one another? And are you willing to work it out? And where you have these three issues, you have a solid, solid marriage. And I hear from time to time, well, I just don't love that person anymore. That person is a real rotter. Oh, well, okay. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. What does the Bible say? Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. And then you say, well, I'm I'm really not so keen on, on this, you know, faith stuff, but I really love my spouse. Oh, yeah? All right. Is your love patient? Is your love kind? Does it envy? Does it boast? Is it not proud? Not rude? Not self-seeking? Not easily angered? Doesn't keep any records of wrongs? It does not delight in the evil, but rejoices with the truth? It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres? Where did you get that list from? You want to be able to do that? Love God. We conform our expectations to culture rather than the Word of God. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come. You will find rest when yoked with Christ. When you conform yourself to Christ's control, when you surrender to the Savior's service, you will find rest for your souls. But culture says, rid yourself of all restraints. Throw off any type of hindrance, which only leads to death. Christ calls. Come. Find rest. 
And when we are yoked together with him, we find that in the challenges we face, in the struggles we encounter, in the hurdles we need to overcome, that there is strength and power in two, more than one separately. That the challenges and hurdles and struggles that will enter into our life, and remember, they will come, can be overcome, and victory is ours. In Jesus Christ. The early church leaders. Remind us of their testimony. That in Christ and Christ alone. We stand. In Christ and in Christ alone. We find our life. In Christ. In Christ alone. We have hope.